Well, welcome back, everybody. Welcome back from lunch. I hope you partook of the, of the nourishment upstairs, uh, particularly those cookie brownie things. Uh, those, those are my favorite. <laughs> uh, and I hope you've enjoyed the presentation so far. I, I have found them all to be very enlightening. Um, apropos of, of, of Tamar's presentation and Congresswoman Lofgren's, where they were trying to read the tea leaves as to the, you know, the political environment for reform this year, I have some data that would seem to suggest that, that nothing is going to happen uh, until, <laughs> until after the election. Uh, and those data take the form of uh, eight rejections that I got from uh, Republican senators, Congress people, and, uh, and other officials in the party to attend this event. Now, it could be that they actually did have something else that they, they wanted to do that day or they had to do, but if they were serious about immigration reform in the near term, then this would be a great place to, to have announced it. Uh, so we heard from panel one about uh, that there are economic benefits to immigration as well as costs. Um, we've heard that uh, there are important distinctions to draw between high-skilled immigrants and, and low-skilled immigrants. Pia Arrhenius made that clear with her visual presentation, which I found very uh, easy to follow, and she made that clear in her remarks. Uh, Barry Chiswick seems pretty convinced that efforts at immigration reform really should be focused on attracting high-skilled workers. Uh, but Ali Nurani made a strong and spirited case that uh, lower-skilled immigrants are also vital to the U.S. economy. Uh, the second panel, particularly Stuart Anderson and Madeline Zavodny, drove home the point that legal channels for uh, immigration are foreclosed that demand for U.S. visas uh, exceeds the supply of U.S. visas, which forces immigration into illegal channels. Uh, and Madeline re reinforced that a few times. Uh, she said that there's currently no role for market forces in the immigration system that we have. Jim Harper, Cato's own, uh, described the myriad collateral costs of programs like E-Verify, and he encouraged us, as Jim does, to not cooperate with the authorities. <laughs> and now we have the final panel. Uh, the, the solutions to the problems identified. And I imagine this, this is the best panel to be on. Uh, <laughs> if you're a policy wonk or an academic, you, know, you want to wear the cape. Uh, you want to solve the problems. And you know, there were hints at solutions in the previous panels. Uh, but by and large, they mostly politely deferred to, to this panel. So I'm pretty sure that uh, Ted Alden of the uh, Council on Foreign Relations will speak uh, about the fantasy of total border security. Uh, and, and how people who are serious about it are deluding themselves. Uh, and he will hopefully suggest some, some alternatives. Uh, I hope Brian Kaplan, writer, economist, uh, econ professor at George Mason University, will discuss his Cato Journal article, uh, which uh, reminds us to stop thinking in binary terms and to notice that there are plenty of solutions when you are willing to consider those solutions scalable. Uh, and finally, not to spill the beans on Alex Narasta, our new immigration policy analyst, uh, but his talk will address directly uh, the concerns expressed earlier that the immigration system currently forecloses a role for market forces. Uh, the speakers will go in succession. It'll be Ted, Brian, Alex, and let me invite Ted to the podium now. Great. So for this is the, for the slides up here? Uh, yes. Oh, right there. Okay. Excellent. Thank you very much, Dan. I'm, I'm delighted Dan's asked me to, to kick off what is clearly the easiest panel of the day, namely <laughs> immigration solutions. So having 
heard uh, this morning what all the daunting problems are in, in the immigration system. I guess the three of us are supposed to, to, to figure it all out and recommend uh, airtight policy responses. There was a, a reporter uh, who used to work for me in the FT Washington Bureau who every time I would assign her a particularly difficult story, she, story, she'd just look at me, she'd say, ah, easy sneezy. So uh, hopefully this will be easy sneezy. Um, I, it, I have actually tried uh, once, uh, and I was chatting with Alex about this beforehand, to, to do this, and, and, and this was in, in 2008, 2009, I was the director of the Council on Foreign Relations Task Force on U.S. Immigration Policy, which was, was a great group uh, to be associated with. It was an effort chaired uh, by Jeb Bush, the former Florida governor, and Mac McClarty, the former White House chief of staff under Bill Clinton. And um, we came out with a document of which I'm, I'm still very proud. It was, uh, you know, I think a serious uh, bipartisan effort to look at what was at stake for the United States in immigration reform and propose some sensible middle-of-the-road uh, solutions. Our formula wasn't terribly novel. I mean, we talked, as many have before, about tougher border enforcement, better workplace enforcement, higher priority for skilled immigration, sensible program of earned legalization for many of the 11 million or so uh, who don't have papers in the country. But in, in truth, by the time we came out with the report, I think the moment, uh, you know, as Tamar has suggested in her, her talk this morning, the moment for comprehensive immigration reform was probably already gone. It had died in the Senate at the end of 2007, and for a lot of reasons, it's just been impossible to revive. So what can be done? Um, there were lots of good ideas hinted at this morning. We're going to hear more uh, from my colleagues on the panel. I want to talk about one aspect of it, and it was the focus of my Cato Journal, a lot of my work, and, and that's the issue of border control. Because border, patrol, uh, border control is an enormously important part of this debate. It's kind of the elephant in the room. Um, for many years now, if you had to point to one reason why Congress has refused to consider uh, larger immigration reform, it's been the issue of amnesty, what to do about the 11 million undocumented. And what many in Congress do is they look back to the experience of 1986, uh, the IRCA legislation, the last time we did a big amnesty. And that was followed for lots of complex reasons, but that was followed with the greatest surge in illegal immigration in the history of the United States. And so not surprisingly, many in Congress have a, you know, fool me once, shame on me, fool me twice, uh, or a fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me kind of attitude. And they're just not willing to pick up this issue again. So what I want to talk to is, is the problem with respect to border patrol, control excuse me, the same as it was in 1986? Um, and I've done a lot of work on different aspects of this, uh, not just the U.S.-Mexico border, but, but broader looking at the air environment, uh, uh, the visa system, which is how all the 9-11 hijackers came, the U.S.-Canada border. And, and I would argue that U.S. border control today looks nothing at all like it did in 1986. Um, as I wrote in the, in the Cato Journal article, uh, which was, was part of this series, um, the United States, for most of its history, has had only the loosest sort of border control. Scrutiny of most visa applicants was cursory. Uh, few checks were done on incoming airline passengers. And it was possible to walk freely over most of the 7,500 miles of land border uh, with Mexico and with Canada. Uh, none of these statements is even the slightest bit true today. And let me run through just a few of the highlights. Um, number of Border Patrol agents, uh, most of them on the southern border. Go back to 1986, fewer than 3,000. Today we have more than 21,000. I mean, this began in the 1990s 
as illegal crossings rose to record highs and accelerated in the second term of, of the Bush administration and into the Obama administration. You add fencing and technological surveillance, which has been deployed across much of that border with Mexico. You know, 25 years, it was relatively simple to slip across the border from Tijuana or from Juarez and quickly disappear into the suburban communities near San Diego or El Paso. That is simply not the case anymore. Getting across the border is a difficult and dangerous undertaking. Um, land ports of entry. Uh, no one is able to cross at our land ports of entry anymore without presenting an official tamper-proof document, such as a passport or a border crossing card. Um, just by point of comparison, when the, the so-called Millennium Bomber, Ahmed Rassam, tried to cross from Canada into the United States uh, at the end of 1999 to, to carry out a, a bomb plot at uh, LA airport, he presented the crossing guard with a Costco card as his proof of identification. Fortunately, uh, they caught on to it. But that, that was considered a perfectly legitimate form of identification to present at the border in 1999. Um, visa checks are far more stringent uh, than they were uh, in the 1990s and 1980s. Uh, Non-visa travelers, those coming from Europe and the developed countries in Asia, have to provide all of their personal information, passport, other identifying information, uh, to the US government well in advance of, of travel. And security background checks are run on these people, not only against terrorist and criminal watch lists, but to look for suspicious travel patterns or other indicators of behavior that might be of concern. Um, every air traveler in the United States now gets fingerprinted upon arrival, both to confirm their identity and to, to do further checks against these lists. And then finally, the United States is, is just in the process right now. And Secretary Napolitano said yesterday the system's going to be fully rolled out by the end of May of uh, checking on departing passengers as well. Um, Professor Chiswick had mentioned the, the, the danger of visa overstairs. The numbers are not as high as he said. The, the, the estimate is... 40%, and Secretary Napolitano said yesterday, based on a lot of the work they've been doing over the past year, it's probably a lot lower than that. So maybe 25, 30% of the undocumented population in the US is here because they overstayed visas. That is about to get much, much harder because we are, you know, it's not a perfect system. I can talk about the flaws, but we're gonna know a lot more about whether people left when they were supposed to. So it is no exaggeration, I would argue, to say that the United States has gone from having one of the most porous borders in the world to having one of them more secure. It is still possible to get in the United States illegally, of course, no question, but it's much, much harder than it used to be. Um, what's fascinating in this debate, though, is judging by the political rhetoric, and we, you know, we've all heard it in the, in the Republican campaign over the last year and in other places, most Americans simply do not believe this is true. Uh, they believe the border is still extremely porous and that it remains easy to get into the United States uh, illegally. So I wanna just dive down a little bit with my slides. Um, so what am I gonna do here? Uh, just click on them here. Uh, there we go. I wanna dive down a little bit in my slides just to look at the situation at the, the US-Mexico border because so much of the debate is about, you know, is that border with Mexico secure? So this slide looks at the number of apprehensions of people trying to cross the Mexican border illegally over the past two decades. And if you add those three lines together, they're broken down by, by states. I'll tell you in a minute why I, I do that. If you add those three lines together, number of people arrested trying to cross the border with Mexico. Actually, let, let, me, let me make that slightly more accurate. The number of arrests of people trying to cross the border with Mexico. These, these count people arrested more than once in, in a given year. Number of arrests is one-fifth, roughly, of what it was at its peak in 2001. Why I find it interesting to break this down 
by state is that the, the, the most noteworthy line there you'll see is the enormous increase in apprehensions in Arizona. And if you want to understand why Arizona became ground zero in the immigration debate in this country, uh, it's because of the way border control played out. Uh, the first places the United States got serious about controlling border, building fencing, massing border patrol were in California and in Texas in the mid-1990s. And the result of that was the traffic was all diverted into Arizona. So Arizona became the primary uh, entry point for illegal immigrants. The number of apprehensions across the southwest border last year was 327,000. Uh, at its peak, those numbers were more than 1.5 million. This is the lowest number we've seen in any year since 1971. Um, so the number of people trying to enter the US illegally has plummeted. And I, I think there is no question, I'll try to make a stronger case for it as I go through, that enforcement has played a significant role in that. As I mentioned, the uh, number of Border Patrol agents has, has increased dramatically. You'll notice particularly since 2005. I don't know, is there any way to highlight that using this? Uh, yeah, there we go. It's particularly since 2005, that curve got a lot steeper. So this enormous buildup of Border Patrol agents in the second term of the Bush administration. Um, just run through the next two, two quickly. We're also starting to see it take effect. And, and obviously, both economics and enforcement are in play here but with a, with a decline in estimates of the, the settled unauthorized population in the United States. So not only are we seeing fewer people coming, we're actually seeing uh, the, the illegal migrant population in the US begin to level off and decline. There's a big study by the, the Pew Hispanic uh, Research Institute, uh, Jeff Bissell released this week that uh, shows that for the, for the first time since the 1930s, there is no net migration from Mexico. So that's if you look at, at legal and illegal migration from Mexico, people coming in and balance out those going back to Mexico, either voluntarily or because they're deported. The numbers over the last five years have been zero. So, so we're at the end of an enormous uh, wave of, of migration from Mexico. Um, other factor, which, which I'll just glance over quickly here, is, is just demographics in Mexico. You, know, you had this, this enormous baby boom in Mexico huge population of, of young males who were looking for work, and this is the group with the highest propensity to migrate. That is now uh, topping out, and Mexico is going to decline over the next uh, couple of decades. So obviously, and, and, um, and Madeline did a good job of pointing this out in, in, her, um, in her talk, um, a lot of the decline in illegal cross-border migration has been driven by economics, mostly by high unemployment in the United States. But as I, as I hope you'll see from this slide, and I actually think that the, the slide that, that Madeline and Pia had that looked at the construction sector almost does this better. I mean, what, what this shows here is that, that for a long time there was a pretty tight connection between the number of apprehensions, so that's a, that's a, a good proxy for how many people are trying to enter illegally, and, and the unemployment rate. As the unemployment rate fell, the number of apprehensions would go up. As the unemployment rate rose, uh, so like here's, here's a situation, an unemployment rising, number of apprehensions starts to fall, usually with a little bit of lag, because it takes a little while for the information to get back to the, the sending countries. But we've really seen, sort of beginning in the mid-2000s, a kind of break with that. So you had the unemployment rate falling here, and you had apprehensions start to fall as well. So sort of 2005, number of apprehensions is falling even as the unemployment rate is falling. Unemployment rate starts to spike, and of course, apprehensions continue to fall. But they have, even with the weak recovery we've seen, 
they have continued to fall. The number of apprehensions year over year over year has continued to fall. So you know, I think what this tells us is that border enforcement is making a difference. It's not the whole explanation for why we've seen the, the big decline in, in, in efforts at illegal entry, but it's a significant factor. And there's a tremendous amount of skepticism in Congress and among the public about whether that's the case. And so just sort of to make my concluding remarks, I think one of the things that we in the think tank world can try to do to address this skepticism is to improve our efforts to, to measure border security, to try to describe in ways that are accessible to people uh, what is going on at the border. And the truth is the apprehensions numbers aren't terribly effective at doing that. Because what those apprehensions numbers tell you is they tell you how many people the Border Patrol catches trying to cross that border illegally. What we actually all want to know is we want to know how many got away. How many people are still entering illegally despite this increased enforcement effort? There are currently significant efforts underway, and I apologize for the complexity of this chart, but there are significant efforts underway inside DHS and outside DHS to try to come up with better answers to this question. And I'll give you the, the, the really short version of this table, which was prepared, to, which was presented at an economics conference last year and comes out of a lot of, of work done over the last decade. This uses all of the data that's gathered on the individuals they, they catch at the border. Now, Border Patrol fingerprints everybody who's caught at the border. So they know if someone is caught you know, more than once. And, and I've seen the numbers, and there are years when you know, the same individual is caught 30 or 35 times in, in a single year, which really bumps up the apprehension numbers. But you can use that data, and depending on your estimates of whether people try again every time they get sent back to Mexico, you can make a pretty good estimate of the percentage of people trying to cross who are, who are actually being caught by the Border Patrol. What this table tells us is that if everyone who's caught by the Border Patrol uh, is sent back to Mexico and tries again, and for a lot of years this was true, basically everybody you know, was caught and put in a bus, sent back to Mexico, they would try again to get across. If that's still the case today, then the Border Patrol, we go over to FY10 over here, the Border Patrol is catching just over 30%. So seven out of 10 are still evading the, the Border Patrol. And that the number below, that, that would be the estimate of the total number of people trying to enter. So if you put those two together, if there's no deterrence, if everybody gets sent back to Mexico, tries a second, a third, a fourth time, then about 300,000 people are still getting in. We're still getting in, in in fiscal 10. But if deterrence is rising because, for instance, it now costs $3,000 to get a smuggler to come across the border because the danger of dying in the desert is going up, because you've got criminal gangs operating on the Mexican side of the border. If that number is going up, and there are lots of reasons to think it is, then Border Patrol is actually doing a much better job. If four out of 10 people don't try again, then that apprehension rate is more than 50%, which means we're catching more than 50% of those who try to cross the border. The total uh, number of people trying in that year was about 290,000, and that would leave 140,000 who got in successfully. So looked at that in that way, progress in border security means kind of moving from the upper left hand of the column where there's no deterrence down towards the right. And I think that's what's happened in recent years. One of the things that I and a number of my colleagues have been arguing with DHS over for some time now is they should start to put more of these numbers out. They actually have a lot of this information and they sit on it. And I think the reason they sit on it is that they're worried about the public reaction. They're worried about the congressional reaction. They're afraid that if they go to Congress and admit 
that the apprehension rate at the border is anything less than 100%. If they go and they say, well, you know, we're catching 50% and that's pretty good, that, that they're gonna get skewered on the Hill and in the media because people are gonna say, well, you know, that's not a secure border. Half the people are getting through. So to conclude, I wanna say after two decades of building up border enforcement, it's really time for all of us to have a grown-up discussion on what constitutes a reasonable level of security. Illegal border crossing is never going to be zero or anything terribly close to it. Um, the comparison that I like to use is the resolution rate for domestic crimes. So let's say for the sake of, of argument that our border apprehension rate is now 50%, so that's the orange line. Well, currently, police and the FBI managed to solve, arrest and prosecute, 13% uh, of burglaries, 17% of property crimes. All violent crimes are solved at a rate of 45%. The only crimes with a solve rate higher than 50% are aggravated assault and murder. So our ability to apprehend illegal border crossers at the border with Mexico is now about as good as our ability to solve violent crimes. Now, should it be better than that? Maybe so. But that calls for a serious discussion of how much is enough. How much are we as a society willing to spend for increasingly incremental improvements in securing the border against illegal immigration? And that's the discussion that needs to be taking place. We can't keep holding all progress on broader immigration form hostage until the border is secured without having some reasonable way to assess what a secure border means. And just as a, as a closing thought, and I talk about this in my article, I don't disagree with Tamar. We're now in an age of, of, of piecemeal, and I think that's the best we're going to hope for. But there still is a logic to comprehensive reform because it links reform in the legal system to enforcement. A simple way to think about this is, you know, if we were to open all the doors tomorrow, say anybody who wants to come and live in the United States can come and live in the United States, we wouldn't have an enforcement problem. I mean, we'd still need border guards to deal with drugs and contraband, but with respect, we wouldn't have an enforcement problem anymore. We wouldn't need any border guards. Conversely, if we ended all immigration quotas tomorrow, uh, the enforcement problem would be greatly magnified. We'd have to spend a lot more than we're spending right now just to hold the level of illegal immigration steady. So there is this intimate relationship between legal reform and enforcement. There's obviously some kind of happy medium between those two extremes. But if we make it easier to come legally, fewer people are going to come illegally. And the reverse is also true. Thank you very much. Uh, Ted wants to have a grown-up conversation about how we can better protect the border. Uh, I want to have a grown-up conversation about whether we should protect the border, uh, whether, uh, whether we are actually doing wrong and whether we have a right to do what we're doing. Uh, let me just begin with a thought experiment. Suppose that moved by the plight of, of the Haitians after the earthquake, you head down to Haiti, engage in a couple weeks of relief work, and then you're ready to come home. Uh, you go to the airport. And the person behind the counter says, I'm sorry, you are not authorized to travel to the United States. So you're puzzled. You go to the embassy and you complain, say, look, I want to travel to the United States. Why can't I? And the person uh, behind the desk says, you just can't. He said, why not? They said, well, the United States does not have to give you a reason. Does not have to give you a reason. The United States does not owe you an explanation. It seems like this would be very wrong, especially if you push them and, and finally mention, oh, by the way, I'm a citizen. Oh, you're a citizen. 
In that case, you can go. And you say, well, in that case, can you tell me what the reason was why you didn't want to let me in in the first place? No reason. No reason. We just didn't, th we just didn't feel like it. All right, it seems like it is wrong to do this. Um, it is awful for a person to be stuck in Haiti. It is horrifying. Uh, you live in dire poverty. You live in hunger. You see your children in hunger. Uh, you live under oppression. You're severely isolated from the rest of the world. It seems like a bad thing to do this to another human being unless you have a very good reason. Now, here at Cato, you might run into people who say, look, we should always respect people's liberty no matter what the consequences are. I would say, well, maybe, but still that seems a bit extreme. Uh, but at minimum, what I would say is that this thought experiment shows there's, some, there's a moral presumption against preventing a person from crossing a border. At minimum, you ought to have some kind of a reason. Right, so the point of the thought experiment is just to establish a presumption against immigration restrictions, to say if you do want to restrict immigration, at least you've got to have a good reason. Now, given that this is a quite bad thing to do to a person, uh, first of all, proponents of uh, restricting immigration have to show that the evils of immigration overcome this presumption. The evils have to be quite severe. But secondly, and more fundamentally, they have to show that there's no cheaper or more humane way to handle the pro whatever problems they're complaining about. Okay. All right, so uh, here I have a nice example from Bart, uh, Bart Simpson. Uh, Lisa, I only lied because it was the easiest way to get what I wanted. Uh, this is what I would say is an example of failing to overcome the moral presumption against lying. <laughs> uh, there are good reasons to lie, but it's the easiest way to get what I wanted is not a very good one. All right, so I'm just going to go quickly through the four main arguments uh, for restricting immigration and then consider, well, you know, consider whether if, you know, you know, if the complaint actually does hold water, uh, whether there is a cheaper, more humane way of handling the handling problem. So probably the most common argument for immigration restrictions is that immigration restrictions are necessary to protect American from, Americans from poverty. Uh, the ba basic facts of this story seem to check out. Uh, there are about a billion people on Earth who live on a dollar a day or less. Uh, they would love to move here. And if you go to uh, basic economic textbooks, it seems to suggest that there would be a large increase in the supply of labor, which would lead to a drastic fall in American wages. Right. So, so far that sounds okay. Uh, however, the story has many holes. Uh, the key point to remember is there isn't one good call labor. There are many different kinds of labor. The billion people who are living on a dollar a day or less are what economists call very low-skilled labor. Very low-skilled labor. So it is reasonable to think that low-skilled wages would fall if uh, we were not, no longer preventing the immigration of low-skilled workers. However, most Americans are not low-skilled. Most Americans are not competitors with low-skilled labor. They are customers of low-skilled labor. So for a lot of Americans, what's really going on is not their wages would go down, but rather that what their wages buy would go up because they're the customers of the people who are selling these products. Think about nannies, people working in restaurants, so on. Okay. Now, secondly, estimates of this wage effect are small. Uh, just to give you an idea of how small, uh, George Borjas is probably the most intellectually respected critic of immigration in the economics profession. If you go to his labor economics textbook, his estimate for the total effect of decades worth of immigration on the wages of American high school dropouts is about negative 5%. Not negative 5% per year, negative 5% total for decades worth of, worth of immigration from low-skilled workers. And he is at the extreme end of pessimism for this estimate. Uh, furthermore, there are offsetting benefits for American employers, American investors, and of course anyone who retires is going to be an investor in fact, if not in name, consumers, and uh, finally, landowners. So if you're thinking about real estate prices in California, there's been some interesting work showing that letting in more immigrants has a very large effect upon real estate prices. If you are bailing out people who's, who, are, who are underwater in their mortgages, this also means that even if you don't own a home, you are actually indirectly benefiting 
from the effect of immigration on real estate prices. But now here's the more fundamental point. Even if this complaint were true, even if it really were true that there was going to be a large negative effect of immigration on American poverty, there's a cheaper and more humane way of handling the problem, namely, freely admit immigrants, but charge them an admission fee or a surtax, or both. Then use the money to compensate native workers who have lost out. Right? Uh, not a politically popular position. However, if the, if the complaint is they are causing poverty, this is a solution that does, in fact, address the, address the concern. It does it without making people watch their children starve in Haiti. How about protecting taxpayers? Uh, here again, there's a simple story where the basic facts do check out. Uh, the American welfare state really does pay more for idleness than many countries pay for work. Therefore, uh, people conclude that immigrants uh, come here to abuse the system. Now, a key fact about the American welfare state that's important to keep in mind is that most money that we spend goes to the old, not to the poor. Uh, the upshot of this is that almost no serious researcher finds a big negative fiscal effect of immigration. There is some debate about whether it's positive, neutral, or negative, but out of people who, who, who can get their work published in real journals, pretty much no one claims that there is a big negative fiscal effect of immigration. Now, if you think this is absurd and implausible, obviously I don't have time to go over a lot of numbers, although in the paper I do try to give you a lot of sources and to give you a fair estimate of how much of a consensus source I'm, I'm, I'm referring to. Here's the thing. Remember, much government spending is non-rival. A lot of government services don't cost any more to provide to a larger number of people. So immigrants help spread the cost of national defense. If we let in 10 million, 10 million more immigrants, we don't need any additional nuclear weapons to defend them. Right? We can average the cost over those people. Uh, even more clear for debt service. Uh, if you ever heard about how every American now owes $40,000 in debt, if we let in more immigrants, we are dividing the number of people that owe the debt by a larger number of people. <laughs> right? This is just math. Now again, even if this complaint were true, once again, there's a cheaper and more humane alternative. Freely admit immigrants, but make them ineligible for benefits. And if you think it's unfair to, unfair to make them ineligible for benefits for life, then you could do something like, say, you are eligible once you have paid a total of $100,000 in taxes. Uh, next, uh, protecting American culture. Uh, so this is another complaint about immigrants. Look, people, immigrants are destroying American culture. Uh, they're ruining, they are ruining our ATM machines by, <laughs> by having multiple languages on them. Uh, they won't <laughs> learn English. <laughs> they won't fit in, uh, et cetera. Uh, now, an obvious flaw with this, and this is, uh, this is granted by people who actually believe in this cultural, cultural complaint, uh, like Huntington, uh, over 90% of second-generation Mexicans speak fluent English. Uh, this is the group that people are probably most concerned about their lack of assimilation. Uh, this is uh, very comparable to the percentage of second-generation immigrants in earlier periods who spoke English. Right? So it isn't really true that they are failing to learn English. In fact, many of them are failing to learn Spanish. <laughs> now, a deeper flaw with this argument uh, if you, like, it's, again, you may wonder, well, why don't we define culture more broadly? It's not just language. Well, how about just take a look at America's, America's cultural centers? Uh, California and New York, uh, which I think are pretty clear, are the cultural centers of America, have high immigration. Uh, cultural centers not uh, for, high, for high culture, also for popular culture, the kind of culture people actually will pay money for, like friends. Okay. <laughs> All right, uh, these have very high immigration. Again, you might think that's a coincidence. Uh, well, let me put it this way. There's at least one kind of culture that almost everyone enjoys, even my dad, and, yeah, and it is clearly attributable to the immigrants themselves, and this is food. Uh, my dad has nothing good to say about immigrants except the Peruvian chicken place in my neighborhood, where as soon as, as, soon as he lands, uh, gets off the plane, can we go to Wild Chicken of Fairfax? <laughs> uh, yes, we can. 
Right? So even if you are a Philistine, still you've got to eat, and clearly immigrants are making enormous contributions to our culture there. Right? You laugh. Why do you laugh? <laughs> now, again, even if this complaint were true, once again, there is a cheaper and more humane alternative, which namely, admit anyone who passes an English fluency exam. How about that? If you can pass an English fluency exam, you can get in. If you, think the, if you think about the fact that there are plenty of Mexicans who spend several years' worth of rural farm wages to hire a coyote to get them across illegally, how many would be happy to go and take that money to go to an English language school and then enter legally speaking English in the process? Uh, it is likely that you could get a large number of people who would happily master English all the way down to a perfect accent if that, were, if that was what was required to get across the border and into the United States labor market. All right, now I might say it's not just language, it's other stuff. All right, fine. Uh, how about we have a cultural literacy test? We'll let Edie Hirsch write the exam. <laughs> uh, you know, again, this seems a lot better than telling people they can never come. Uh, I mean, it, it is a little bit funny to think about what would be on this exam. Clearly, if you wanted it to be a test that most American natives could pass, you wouldn't want it to be things like name three operas. <laughs> name three popes. <laughs> <laughs> name three wars in Europe before 1800. And so as to what exactly our culture is that, and, and, and what, it, what it is that we know about it that immigrants don't know, I'm a little bit puzzled by this, but still, I'm not gonna dig my heels in here, fine. Let's just write, write, a, write a test of cultural literacy. It seems unfair uh, to write one that immigrants respected to pass if most Americans could not pass it, so let's, let's do that. But otherwise, yeah, this is a great way to get people to learn all about our culture before they come. You know, including what foot sport football really is. <laughs> All right, now we come to a last complaint. This is one that is the most common complaint among libertarians and also common among conservatives too. All right, so protecting American liberty. This is the most popular excuse among libertarians. Uh, immigrants come from status countries. Immigrants come from status countries. And if they arrive here, they will eagerly vote to ruin our country too. Okay. Um, now, if you know my first book, The Myth of Rational Voter, I will say this, is, this claim is not entirely wrong. Uh, in that book, I say that what the, main different, the, the main cause of the policies we have is public opinion. If you look at two democracies and one has worse policy than the other, it's a safe bet to say that the public in the country with worse policy has worse views about what, what good policies are. So I have no principled objection to the mechanism that people are pointing to. Uh, but still, I'm going to say that the problem is greatly overstated. Uh, first of all, non-natives have low turnout, which is often held against them by social scientists. <laughs> but if you think they're going to vote badly, you should actually be happy. <laughs> if you think that immigrants do not vote well, then at least you can say, but they don't vote as much. So that is a reason why the problem's not as uh, severe as it seems. And this is true even controlling for other factors. Just if you're not born in this country, you're just not as politically engaged. And if you think your political engagement would be a bad thing for the rest of us, uh, then you should actually be happy uh, rather, than rather than angry. Now, a more important argument, uh, one that I'm working on with my co-author, uh, Zachary Goshener, uh, is there's actually quite a bit of evidence that countries that are ethnically homogeneous have bigger welfare states. Places like Denmark and uh, Scandinavia is becoming less homogeneous, but historically they were very homogeneous, very large welfare states. It seems like a lot of what was going on is that if everyone in your country is blonde, like you, the idea that they might be abusing the welfare state just seems ridiculous to you. Surely a fellow blonde person would not <laughs> just go on welfare to rip us off. They would only go on welfare for a good reason, and I am happy to pay taxes for that. 
On the other hand, in countries where people on welfare don't look like you, don't act like you, these are places where people are generally more critical of the welfare state. This is a common explanation for why the American welfare state is smaller, is a lot of Americans feel like the money is going to people that the, uh, people in groups that they don't identify with. Probably not exactly that they dislike, but that they don't love as much as people who look, look and act like them. Okay. Now, this has been done mostly for linguistic and, uh, and, and, and racial differences. But it makes a lot of sense that this would work for differences in national origin, too. So there's a good reason to think that immigrants actually reduce the uh, native support for the welfare state, because people do not like helping out groups. So even if every immigrant were to vote for the, in favor of the welfare state, it is at the same time reducing support among natives. The net effect is a minimum unclear, and the evidence we have actually suggests that the welfare state is probably smaller when you have greater ethnic diversity and uh, other kinds of diversity. Now, again, even if this complaint were true, there is a cheaper and more humane alternative, namely freely admitted immigrants to work and live, but not to vote. Again, if that seems unfair, then it's fine. So you can say 10 years, then you can vote, or anything in between. All right, now I'm going to give you the, the verdict. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, here we have Nelson, uh, which was giving what I believe is the real argument uh, for immigration restrictions, uh, the classic bully's complaint, you're breathing my air. You're breathing my air. It's like, what did I ever do to you, bully? You've done a great harm to me. You breathe my air. <laughs> uh, the standard arguments fail to overcome the presumption against immigration restrictions. Most of them are most of the complaints just don't hold up. The you know, minimum the situation is a lot more complicated. Uh, in many, uh, to a large extent, what people think of as problems are, are actually not only not problems, but the opposite is true. There's a lot of evidence that the net effect of immigration is to improve the, uh, the average American's economic well-being because we consume the stuff that they make more than we compete with them. And of course, anyone who owns a home or pays taxes to bail out the people who bought homes they could not afford. Uh, should be happy to see immigrants raising real estate prices. But anyways, even if the problems immigration restrictions purport to solve are genuine, are as awful as people claim, uh, there are certainly cheaper, more humane alternatives. I use this word certainly very rarely uh, because most things are not certain. Very few things are. I have a running argument with my colleague Peter Betke, who often will say things like certainly, and then I will quote the, H the uh, Gilbert and Sullivan's HMS Pinafore to him, uh, where there's a song where the captain sings, I never, never sink at sea, and his crew sings back, but never, and the captain goes back, but never, and then the, then the crew says, you know, but never, <laughs> and the captain says, well, hardly ever. <laughs> um, this is one of those rare cases where I will stick my neck out and say, this is something that is certainly true. There are certainly cheaper, more humane alternatives than saying, you are not allowed to come here, and we are going to grab you and, and physically expel you from the country if we catch you coming here illegally, namely, entry fees, surtaxes, welfare eligibility requirements, tests of English fluency, tests of cultural literacy, voting restrictions. These are all things that we could do instead of what we're doing. And if you think that they're bad, what we currently do is far worse. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Brian, and uh, thank you, Dan, for putting this conference together at the last minute. Uh, I don't know if it was mentioned before, but Dan sort of uh, took over the conference after the previous person who was working on it, Dan Griswold, uh, left Cato, and I think he's done a great job of putting it together. Um, I'm going to be talking today about one of the less bad uh, solutions to the immigration problem, uh, much better certainly than the present system and something that could be improved upon. Um, I want to begin by saying uh, the immigration system in the United States is not broken. 
Uh, to be broken, the system would have to work in a way other than it is intended. But the uh, immigration system works almost exactly as it's intended, by keeping the vast majority of people who want to migrate here from doing so. Uh, if global polls are to be uh, believed, only about a fifth of people who want to move here have, including all unauthorized immigrants. Of all the people who are not legally allowed to immigrate here, only about 7% have broken the law and become unauthorized immigrants. Immigration restrictionists have the policy that they want. If only 7% of Americans broke the drug laws, America's prohibitionists would claim victory. Uh, unrestricted immigration of peaceful and healthy people is by far the best policy option. But I'm going to offer a less positive but more practical idea that I call an immigration tariff. Uh, simply the idea is to put a price on green cards or work permits and sell them. I'm not talking about selling citizenship, just the ability to come here, work, live, invest, etc. Uh, similar to a tariff, there should be no numerical limits on the number of immigrants, just a price that must be paid to enter, work, live, and legally own property here. Green cards and work permits are administratively scarce because the government says so, and not scarce in any real economic sense of the word. The advantages of a tariff are vast in comparison to the current restrictions. It, re it would remove most of the bureaucracy, allow the supply of immigrants to meet employer demands, increase legal immigration, and convince some American voters that immigration is actually good for the United States. The quantity of immigrants could adjust to the price instead of hitting rigid quota walls. As Brian wrote in his uh, great book, The Myth of the Rational Voter, uh, voters tend to be, uh, have a very skeptical view of economic exchanges with foreigners, especially immigrants. Uh, making immigrants pay to be here and work will, I think, remove some of that negativity. Uh, we just heard earlier that there are uh, numerous immigration restrictions. Here are just some of a uh, list of some of the real quotas that restrict migration. Uh, the real system, of course, is vastly more complicated than it appears up here, but uh, I don't have enough slides to really show that and it'd be a waste of your time. Uh, the result of this system is uh, pretty obvious for everyone to see. Domestically, it creates an in informal economy, punishes businesses and entrepreneurs, slows economic growth and economic liberty, while growing government involvement in all of our lives, uh, especially through workplace regulations like the I-9 and E-Verify. An immigration tariff is simple to operate. The government would sell these work permits or green cards at a fixed price. The government wouldn't restrict the numbers sold, merely verify that the purchasers are not criminals, suspected criminals, terrorists, or have deadly communicable diseases. But all others should be eligible if they can pay the price. This novel approach to reform um, means that you don't really have to change any other laws. But I'll come back to that in a moment. Now, there, are, I think, are uh, two different goals that an immigration tariff could meet. Um, one of them good, one of them not so good. Um, and they're not necessarily contradictory. The first would be to uh, try to minimize the negative political externalities of immigration. We have this large welfare state. We have a lot of uh, social services. Immigrants use them at a lower rate as natives, but there's still a cost there. So although immigrants use fewer ones, um, those with immigrants with a less than a high school degree are still net benefit, uh, benefit receivers. Uh, to correct for this, you could charge a higher price, a higher tariff levy, when they immigrate to make up for the extra amount of social services they will receive. We could easily change other laws to deny them more government benefits. Um, by all means, I think we should get rid of the welfare state, um, not just for immigrants, but for everybody. But if we can't do that, we should at least build a wall around it. 
uh, for, to deny immigrant access, both for their benefit and for ours. Um, if we can't get rid of it, putting a higher tariff on those likely to migrate, I think, would um, and be on the welfare state makes a lot of sense. The second goal could be to maximize government revenue. Now, I don't like this goal, uh, being a libertarian, very much, but uh, some bureaucrats might, and this might be an unintended consequence of it. Uh, in this case, the government could levy a higher tariff on immigrants who gain the most from coming here, probably those with skills. Uh, here's a mock tariff schedule I made up. Uh, this one is designed to diminish the negative externalities of lower skilled migration that are created by the welfare state. I divide it up by educational attainment and age with older and less educated immigrants uh, paying a higher price than younger and more educated ones. Uh, charging younger people less makes sense from the government's fiscal position uh, so they can maximize the fiscal net present value of migrants before they go on Medicare and Social Security. According to the 1997 National Research Council uh, book, um, all but the least educated immigrants are a fiscal positive for the federal government, especially taking into account the 1996 Welfare Reform Act. So charging these few immigrants the differences between what they will expect it to pay in taxes over their lifetime and what they will receive in benefits from the government um, is pretty easy to do. So uh, another question is, who's going to pay this tariff? Uh, the question is, uh, almost anybody should be able to. Um, up here I have a quick list. Many of the groups up here already already pay for migrants to come to the United States, uh, legally or illegally. So it's not a stretch to think that many of them would step up and pay the fee if we introduced an immigration tariff. Now, I'm sure a lot of you are thinking about some criticisms of this uh, right now, and I'm going to address some of those. One is that most of these migrants are poor. They can't afford to pay to come here even if there was a tariff. They're just going to keep coming through illegal channels. But I don't think that's true. And we can see why by looking at what migrants currently pay to come to the United States through smuggling. According to surveys, 80 to 93 percent of first-time Mexican illegal crossers during the 2000s paid a smuggler to bring them across. During the same time, the average illegal Mexican crosser reported paying somewhere between two dollars and $3,000 to be smuggled over just the land border, and they could still be deported after arriving here. So they pay money to enter, and there's no legal security that they can stay here and continue to work. Consequently, the main effects of increased border enforcement appear to be decreased movement back and forth across the border and a lot of higher smuggling prices. Now, it's very difficult to measure prices in an informal economy, but uh, there's a great website called HavocScope.com that attempts to measure them by using anecdotes, both from government reports and from news stories. Um, it's not perfect, but I think it gives a very good indication of this black market and what it costs to be smuggled into the United States. Uh, coming in by boat is more common um, than it used to be because of strict border control on the southern border, uh, but it is also more expensive. As you can see, the prices vary tremendously based on destination countries, routes, risk, and the distance from the United States. I want to draw your attention to the figure for China, which is $75,000 per head to smuggle into the United States. In the year 2010, the uh, Department of Homeland Security estimated that there were 280,000 unauthorized Chinese immigrants in the United States. Um, a large number of them, according to surveys, uh, paid something similar to $75,000 to be smuggled here. Now, that's a lot of money going to human smugglers that could otherwise be captured by tariffs. Uh, immigrants are capable of paying a very high price to come here and very, very willing to do so. 
borrowing against their anticipated higher wages in the US, saving their resources before they come, pooling community resources have already proven to work. So why not let them pay the US government instead of human smugglers? <clears throat> now the benefits of paying a tariff versus coming illegally are pretty large. The wage difference between the United States and developing nations is wide enough to absorb a pretty large tariff and still incentivize legal immigration. Not only that, but immigrants will invest more in themselves and in the United States if they're allowed to stay. We saw this in the after effects of the 1986 amnesty, where the productivity of legalized immigrants shot up after they were granted legal status. Being legal increases your wages. It's worth paying to do so in most situations. As a result, all of the other good effects of immigration that accrue to Americans, such as reaping the benefits of increased entrepreneurship, economic growth, and returns to capital also increase. Security and legal certainty for immigrants is important for investing in themselves and in their businesses here. A tariff would also cut down on the, this cost, the cost of migrant deaths on the southern border by driving many of these people who otherwise would cross the desert or stow away in cargo containers toward paying for admission. Another criticism I get about the immigration tariff is that it's unethical to charge immigrants admission. Now, I don't propose selling citizenship or the right to vote. This proposal is just about selling the ability to live, work, and invest here. And of course it's ethical. It's better than letting immigrants waste away in poor countries, forcing them into the informal economy, using smugglers, and better than making Americans break laws and risk serious legal consequences from dealing with the migrants that they want to. Also, let's not kid ourselves. There's always been a price to moving here. The biggest cost right now is waiting, sometimes decades, or not being able to allow, uh, not being able to come at all because there's no visa category for you. The opportunity cost in that situation is very large indeed. There even used to be a head tax on immigrants coming into Ellis Island. And then there's paying for attorney's fees, transportation, understanding forms, hiring translators, dealing with government fees and bureaucrats, smugglers, and the risk of being enslaved by them. Immigrants pay quite a bit already, especially the unauthorized ones. Why not make them pay one price to the government and then let them come? Legalizing the informal market and providing a legal mechanism for future migrants would prevent much of the unauthorized immigrant mess from reoccurring. American firms would be able to expand by finding the talent and workers that they demand. Americans would be the beneficiaries of increased innovation, entrepreneurship, profits, and wages. Immigrant numbers would fluctuate based on supply and demand. So more would come if there are a sufficient number of Americans who demand them. By fixing the price, but letting the quantity expand, there will be some potential for immigrants to be priced out of the market for sure but many more would be able to immigrate legally than previously. Tariffs allow the quantity of immigrants to adjust, which is better than the outright bans and rigid quotas that presently exist. And politically, I think most Americans would begin to view the positive sides of immigration because it would be obvious that immigrants are contributing to be here because they paid to be. Now, if we're worried about the welfare costs of immigration, even though they consume fewer government services than Americans, with similar characteristics, even a minor tariff makes immigrants' fiscal contribution positive to the federal government. Not to mention shrinking the immigration bureaucracy and saving money that way, or refocusing it on preventing actual criminals from entering, 
would also free up money for tax cuts or other worthy goals. I hate to state this as a libertarian, but this is a way for the government to find new taxpayers instead of creating new taxes. And many potential immigrants prefer the option to be legal than illegal or get a shot at coming to our shores even if they have to pay a steep tariff. Finally, I want to say in conclusion, this is a viable policy alternative because Americans who already gain from immigration but don't yet know it will realize it when millions of immigrants would be willing to pay many thousands of dollars each to work and live here. Thank you.